Hello everyone, I am Matt Phelan. I'm Clive Highland. And we are kicking off the second um, series of Working With Humans. Um, it is, is it, is it October today or is it? October the 1st. Yeah, yeah October yes. the 1st today and it's 2019. Yeah. And we are sitting in, um, in the new Happiness Index office, which um, we're looking out on a pub called The Harrow, which I've given up booze for a year, so I can't try it out yet. <laughs> and, and the other side of us, we've got the Thames. Um, an area called Blackfriars, which I googled to impress Clive about what Blackfriars means. The name Blackfriars was first used in 1317 and derives from the black kappa worn by the Dominican friars who moved their priory from Holborn to the area between the River Thames and Ludgate Hill in 1276, which is where we are. Um, a reminder on why we do this podcast, um, we record this podcast because I, on my journey um, as an entrepreneur, I get to meet so many amazing people that I learn from and I've been working, I was trying to work it out Clive, but it's probably about 12 years. Uh, yeah, must be close to that. Yeah, yeah so Clive's been a mix of uh, my personal coach and our business coach mm-hmm. um, and he's an, in, um, an investor and shareholder in the Happiness Index. Yep. Um, but that's not primarily what I've got him on today. But um, I'd like to introduce why this is about amazing humans, Clive. Um, and I, if I wanted to describe what I've got from working with you, so other people could understand. So when you have a when you do a working session with Clive, I don't know if I've ever written this down, Clive. But you know that song you can see clearly now. The rain is gone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't make you sing it even though you're well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you have a session with Clive, at the beginning, you're thinking, oh, you're excited about the session. In the middle of it, you're normally thinking, where is this going? This is a waste of my time. What's going on? <laughs> but by the end of it, you or the team have got a bit of clarity that really helps what you're doing. Um, and the second point on an individual bit, which um, my business partner, Chris, um, and I talk about a lot, which is Chris did a really amazing article um, about the mental strains that uh, running and building up a, a marketing agency put on both of us. And mental health is an area that I've got involved since. And I would say both Chris and I survived the experience of building and selling a company and starting again. And in some of the advice from your first session that you ever gave with us, which you've probably forgotten now, which for most people, if you think about a setting up in your first session, you're probably thinking it's about business strategy tactics the difference between objectives and all that kind of stuff but the thing that Clive taught us which kept us going um, as entrepreneurs would be listen to your body um, and we'll come back to that because fundamentally that is at the core of what Chris and I have have done as entrepreneurs is that your body tells you stuff and quite often as men you're taught to ignore that through maybe the sports that you're playing or whatever um, so I think Chris and I didn't just survive and thrived because we were prepared to listen to our body in ways that people didn't. And then if one of us was not feeling great, we would just tell the other one. Um, so that's why I've got you on, because I want to get into a bit more of that to help other people with that. Okay, cool. So Clive, I've introduced you. Please yeah. introduce yourself. Okay, simply so. My career fundamentally has been in business, mainly in leadership positions over about 30 years. What's always driven me is intense interest in people behaviour. Um, so I originally studied things like psychology and sociology, then discovered about 15 years ago what we now call neuroscience. Um, and I've been working with that ever since because to me it offers a completely fresh understanding as to what human, ha- uh, human nature is all about. 
and no doubt we'll explore some of that in this conversation. Yeah, so we're definitely going to come back to neuroscience. Okay. Um, but before that, I've got some even more important questions. Question number one, if you had to pick, and you have to pick on both of these, uh, status quo or Tom Jones? Oh, it'd have to be Tom Jones. I think the Welsh connection is too strong there. <laughs> Chris said you would you would go status quo. But it was so close though. <laughs> you've got the Welsh the Welsh uh, legion that has come yeah, back in here. Emotions first. Yeah, uh, rugby or football? Uh, oh, that's different. Different levels. Internationally, it's definitely rugby, and at the club level, it's football. Oh, I think I would have said the same. Yeah, uh, yeah, this yeah. one, Chris reckons you won't be able to answer, which is pasta or pizza. Oh, uh, I, I can force a pizza down, but neither is, love, neither is a love of mine. <laughs> cool. Okay, so let's get into the meat of this. Right. Um, Clive, what, I mean, this is a big question, but what's, what's in life, what's important to you? Uh, I think learning, to be honest. You know, there's this, I don't mean to diminish the importance of this. Obviously, there are things like family and there's no, no such thing as, um, there's no love that, that equates to family love, as strongly as it, but... I think on a personal level, it's all about understanding life, um, and that's grown in me and has led me on such a uh, an enriching journey. Yeah, so it really, it's just keep learning, keeps me alive. And have you got advice for someone who's starting out in their career? Because they uh, they say, don't they? Like, because I've got a five year old daughter, and she seems to be know everything. And they say the the more experience you get, the more you realise how little you know. Yeah. Um, have you got any advice for someone who's starting out their career now and how to make sure that they're learning? Yeah, I think fundamentally work, as soon as they can, work out who they are themselves. Um, and that's a journey that will never stop. But all too often people are carried away by other people's agendas and by other people telling them what they think they should be doing with their lives. Yeah. And I think it's important to listen to that stuff, but nobody knows what's going on inside of you. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge and the purpose of life is to work out how you react to things, what presses your buttons and what doesn't, and what's really going to fulfill you as you go through life. And when you're fulfilled, you perform at your best. So the whole thing comes together. Yeah. And was that something that's always, like, when you were, like, a 15-year-old back in Wales or wherever, illegally drinking or whatever, did you, <laughs> is that something that's all been with you or is that something that developed later in life for you, the love of learning? No, I think it's always been with me. I'm, I'm conscious of it probably when I was, you say 15, I think that was about right. I, I know I was always a real student of, of classroom behaviour and, and not in a nerdy sense. I was one of the lads, but nevertheless, I always used to reflect on what made people react in different ways. Yeah. And that took me then off on a more formal um, study career of uh, trying to work out what the hell was going on so you were a people watcher you liked yeah observing. definitely definitely you know yep. trying to work out what's driving them so that, that's that's a part of me i think genetically to be honest and we just we've just come out of a, a session ask asking ourselves a question which some people think would be simple but what is inside <laughs> right um, and we we sort of explored the point that Insight is about understanding emotions um, and, and moving it out of data into knowledge. Yeah. But one of the things that companies seem to fear is you've got people who see instinct on one side and data on the other. How do, how do you get people to understand that they're, that, that they're part of the same thing together? Have you got any advice for anyone that's... Because a lot of the stuff you read says, oh, like, get away from instinct, just follow data. And then some people are like, well, it's all about instinct. Have you got a way of aligning those two worlds? 
Well, yeah, I think there's, um, you know, obviously my reference point in understanding of the brain and, and to understand how, for instance, the rational and instinctive part of the brains work together, the, the brain works together with the emotional system, you know, to ha- allow us to make sense of life. But, but equally, there's other research, such Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in, in a book called Blink, uh, which also shows, they did a comparison there between, if you like, a- analytical work to come to decisions versus instinctive work to come to decisions yeah. and actually found that they were of equal value and e- equal accuracy. Um, so what my take from that is that they both have a role to play and they can come together. So for instance, if you are a very instinctive person and you come to a conclusion quickly, that's excellent. It can make you decisive, but you can't always trust your instincts. So what you have to do is continue to be open to data that's available to you to check if your instincts are appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, equally, the guys that are very data driven, I think, need to acknowledge other people's instincts as well and yeah. try to work out where they come from. But ultimately, they will serve together because the brain works as a total system. It doesn't work yeah. in isolation. So it goes back to your point of learning, isn't it? Which is yeah. it, c- c- collecting more data to feed your natural instincts. Yeah, I'd like to comment a bit more on the, on the insight. Yes, because, please. Because I think, you know, insight is different for everyone. You know, even though you as a business offer insights, it has to be about personal meaning. I get an insight when what is reported to me or what I experience gives me a personal meaning. Yeah. And the way that we take that from data is we draw our own life experience to tell us what's important about the data. Yeah. Now, in neuroscience terms, the way we do that is emotionally. We attach emotional value to the data. And because of our experience, it'll tell us what we should pay attention to and what we shouldn't pay attention to. And that then drives us towards an insight or a decision. Yeah. So the word insight is interesting because it, it implies something that's in, either inwards, yeah. and it also implies something that's a sight, which is something we can see. And that's exactly how the brain works. You know, when we make meaning of um, stimuli, we create the visual image in our brain that creates an emotional connection for us that says, this makes sense. Yeah. I know there's a lot to explain in just a couple of sentences, but it's that point where internally we connect with something that's come into us and gives us meaning. That's an insight. And that's what we're in the game of rather than just data. Yeah. One of the things that, people have contacted us about previous podcasts that they've been really interested in is that because a lot of people we've had on has talked about the importance of emotions mm. but they've come in because they've been told in their careers they're too emotional um, and they're not almost robot enough and they've responded they've like got in touch with me afterwards saying it was so good to hear that advice that it is okay to be emotional at work yeah. what's your view on that well, number one, we have no choice about the level to which we experience emotions. So it's not possible to be too emotional. Our emotions are much quicker in our brain than our, our thoughts. You know, it takes um, 80 milliseconds to register an emotion in the brain, whereas it takes 250 milliseconds to register for thought. So the way that we react is emotionally first. Now, what our thoughts will do then is try to moderate our response so that, for instance, we don't say things that will get us fired, yeah. right? But it's always that way around. So what it means is if somebody says you're too emotional, what they're probably trying to say is you're demonstrating too much emotional behaviour. 
But the great danger in that is that if you're not true to your own emotions, you just build up an internal anxiety, which certainly impacts your performance and ultimately would impact your health. Yeah. So part of the challenge here is how do we have organizations that are much more savvy about the role of emotions and instincts in the way that people perform in their businesses. Yeah. You ignore them at your peril. And we've gone down a path for the last 200 years which focuses on rational, rational, rational. And it's all about control and having people fit the rules and fit their job descriptions. That is diminishing enormously what people actually have to offer. Yeah. So now, you know, with neuroscience and other you know, techniques that are coming along, it's very much about sort of saying, look, emotions are and instincts are the essence of us. And if we can understand those and channel those, they have huge amounts to give us in terms of performance. So, that, so one piece of our work together at the Happiness Index is how we use data and insight to help companies be more human. Yeah. And the way you described. Obviously, you've got your neuroscience background yeah. and you've got your personal views on how yeah. you should, humans should be treated. Yeah. How do you bring the two areas together of like understanding to treat people like humans and science. Have you got any advice on that from anyone that's trying to do that in their company? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the big role of science here, look, m- most people that have been involved in leading organisations uh, for any length of time will know that there's a lot of things that have been tried that don't work on a sustainable level. You know, we see lots of new techniques uh, introduced, perhaps on the basis of some another psychological model, um, but two years down the line, we're back where we were. And it's what many people at the top of organizations are looking for is something that is going to work and is going to be sustainable. But for a lot of those people, they've lost faith in just another model that comes along, another way of looking at the world. So the connection for me, yes, I've got my beliefs in how people should be treated, but the connection for me is that if we can offer genuine science, which supports a fresh view of what human character really is, there are many people out there that will look, that'll give them the confident, the, the comfort at the very least to actually find out if this has got something more to offer. And of course, I absolutely believe it does. Yeah. You know, it's a fundamentally different view. It's like fun, look, psychology has basically done a great job in taking us to an understanding so far of the mind. But what neuroscience is, brings to the equation is an understanding of the brain. And you can't separate the two. You know, the brain creates the mind and the mind creates the brain. So it's like what we're after now is the second 50%. What can take us that much further? Because a number of the assumptions in psychology are no longer valued. You know, some of them are excellent. Some example, can you give us some examples? Well, for instance, you know, you'll see very, conversa- very little conversation in psychology about energy. Yeah. But, you know, we understand, and not just from neuroscience, but, but like quantum physics and things like that. Essentially, we are energetic beings. We yeah. are not psychological beings. The, you know, the psychology or our conscious awareness only comes into a small part of the brain. And it's like the jockey on the horse is trying to control the horse, but the horse, our emotions and our instincts, and if it doesn't want to jump, it won't, it won't jump. Yeah. So this is now the game about how do we open up that whole understanding of the way that we work energetically, the way that we connect with each other, disconnect with each other, and how our minds try to make sense of that. Yeah. And that intelligence system doesn't just sit in the brain, it sits right throughout the body. Yeah. So another critical difference is that 
psychology to me didn't usually acknowledge sufficiently well how how important our body is as an intelligence system yeah and that's part of what we need to put on the table that's really useful and then just another bit to chuck into sort of talk about what you do and just chuck what i would just use one sport one today because it's easy yeah. to fall into sport yeah, yeah but i was lucky to have lunch with justin king who was the former ceo of sainsbury's okay. um, and he talked about one of his best mates as a professional gambler yeah. and he was saying he was teaching and giving us insight on how how you can be um, a professional gambler and one of the things that they first study is things that won't happen so they gave us a he gave me a really interesting example that because of the way humans are there's loads of scores that will happen and there's loads of scores that won't happen but one thing that universally never happens is that a team is winning 3-0 at half time and then they win 6-0 right and the, the description of that was that um, because the team that are winning 3-0 already start to conserve energy for later on. Yeah. And the team that are losing 3-0 are so embarrassed they raise their game. So when you're betting, you know already that's a result to yeah. rule out is 6-0. But there is one team across all sports that defies that logic um, and it's the New Zealand uh, rugby team. Right. So they're the only team in global sport that do, um, defy it. And this is why I want to get your knowledge on this because... The description of why they do it is actually, he's described it back to the hacker. And most people think the hacker is about like, you're going to slit the throats of the opposition and they do those very aggressive um, things. But what um, apparently the hacker is about, according to this guy, is about, it's just saying the most important part of the game is the last 20 minutes. And they teach themselves, the hacker is basically saying that the last 20 minutes of the match are the next 20 minutes of the next match. So they flip it round. So I find that fascinating because that is, that's knowledge overriding what, what your natural instinct is. So have you got ways in terms of how you help people understand their body um, to perform better at work? Does that, is it, is, can we use neuroscience for that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it is an unusual area. And so it's, for some people, these are going to be different sort of techniques. But you can create awareness in people as to when their bodies are starting to send them signals. Because effectively, we've got to remember, every cell in our body is a sensing mechanism. You know, we had bodies before we had brains, when you look back into our evolution. Yeah. So they're all capable of sensing energetically what's going on around them. I think just for everyone listening, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Is we had bodies before we had brains. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So we, we think, we, we fall into the trap of thinking we call all the shots from our brains. But... The brain is like an IT hub where we integrate information. And of course, it's vital and incredibly powerful, but it relies on information from the body. The body is the sensing mechanism, which first of all says, look, there's something going on here, mate. You need to check this out. So it could sense that in terms of, you know, hostility in a room or something that didn't ring true with other people. So we have to acknowledge. So basically getting into our bodies is about spotting the triggers. So for instance, if we... If we know that in certain circumstances we're inclined to get anxious and we know that that you know, has a social and health impact on us, one of the means of intervening around that is to try to work out things like you know, what are the triggers, see them come in as early as possible so our body's got a chance to respond before we go into sort yeah. of like defensive mode and equally to work out what it is about those triggers that cause us anxiety because in, in some way it's linked normally to our memory. So it may be that, for instance, we've developed a fear based in memory now 
of uh, people in authority positions exposing us, you know, telling us off publicly or whatever, yeah. which, is, which is quite normal. But working on that stuff and using our body to sense when that trigger is starting to tip us over the edge yeah. is very, very important. Um, and typically, what we've learned to do is only control that at the behavior level. But by only controlling at the behavior level, we still have all the emotional distress that's going on in the body around that fear response. So is that, are, you, are you just treating the symptom if you do that? That's precisely the right. point. So what we're trying to get to is get the body as an intelligence system to tell us, look, there's something here I don't like. Yeah? And then we have to address, actually try to address it on a body level. Yeah. And that means trying to resolve conflicts within us where we sometimes feel the need to behave in a certain way, but we feel differently about it. Yeah. Now, I said, and we have to be realistic. We don't want to go around being so honest that we get fired, right? Yeah. But equally, we can build between us environments that allow us to be much more honest about our responses and our vulnerabilities. So let's, do, let's try and use a live example then, Clive. Yeah. When I'm mentoring people, one of the things that they, it comes up all the time, then they're in a meeting, 10 people, um, and they, the debate is going on, and they feel like they have the answer to the big point, and they don't say anything. And then they get out of the meeting, and they kick themselves. Yeah. And they feel it, and they feel themselves shutting down. So can we talk through a live example about if, if someone, how could you help someone like that? So I think there are two considerations here. One is the external environment, and the second one is the person themselves. So what I mean is the external environment is I would want to find out more about what, was, what was the climate of that meeting that didn't allow a person to take a risk on a comment. Yeah. Okay. So it could imply that there's a lack of trust, you know, it's a bit too brutal, the meeting, etc., etc., yeah. that type of stuff. So there's the, own, the external dynamics. But equally, I would need to understand the person's own response mechanisms. So the way that they take, they make sense of their experiences. Yeah. And, you know, I'll work on a sort of classification which typically looks at, you know, the rational, reflective, emotional and instinctive systems that run in the brain. So, for instance, a person that's very rational sometimes needs extra time in order to process information before they can respond. Yeah. And that can make them quite precise and deliberate, which is a positive. But on the other hand, it means they can miss the opportunity. Yeah. Right. So part of this is, for instance, is learning what those different systems in the brain offer you. So the person with a much more emotional or energetic style are much more likely to dive in and grab the moment. But equally, they may grab the moment in the wrong way because yeah. they're overexcited. Yeah. So it's always a balance in that. Well, you know, how can I use all these systems in the brain to, to see what my intervention measures are? Yeah. So it, it, my, yeah, my intervention techniques are probably better than measures. So it's not trying to say like this simple, do this, because normally when you say do this, for that person it doesn't work. Yeah. You have to work out how the, what makes the person tick and then find out that an alternative strategy that will give them a better impact. Yeah. So yeah. there's two sides of it then. There's the culture Absolutely. for the person to be able to feel like they do that. Absolutely. But then there's their own internal bit, yes. which interestingly both come back to trust, don't they? Which yeah. is, do you trust, trust your own ability? Yes. Uh, are you backing yourself? And do you trust the people in your room with? Absolutely. And when, you know, I've far too often I've come across the, the sentiment, implicit sentiment in many corporate organisations where trust is almost considered like a nicety. You know, yeah, you'd like to have it, but we're not quite sure how to get on with it, how we actually achieve it. So let's let's forget about it for now. But trust creates so much opportunity for humans to perform on an individual and collective level. It's an absolute platform for 
ultimate, you know, performance. Yeah. And, you know, even an athlete or a footballer or a sports person coming back to that, getting into the zone, is where they get into a position where they trust themselves. Yeah. And trusting yourselves means just your body opens up, mind and body itself, and gives you so much more than when you're just in survival mode and, and fearing yeah. for the next attack that's going to come your way. Yeah. So again, sorry, not a straightforward answer. No, no, I reflect on that as well, because yeah. sports that I played when I was younger, I just played naturally. Yeah. And sports that I'm rubbish at, that I picked up later at golf. Yeah. I'm fine down the golf range, but once I play on the golf course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just heads up. Yeah, and a part of that, again, is just, you know, the body is most, it's, as it is most efficient when it's in an instinctive space. And part of what we've got to do, if, if I take it on the, the, the golf example, is learn to trust the incredibly sophisticated mechanisms that we have at an instinctive level to allow us to perform. But so when we can get to that point of trusting ourselves, we have a lot to offer other people and ourselves. Yeah. It's knowing when to get to the point where we've sufficiently envisaged and practiced something that we can trust yeah. ourselves. And that's where, and that, for me, that's what good leadership is about, which is getting Absolutely. your team to be able to back themselves. Precisely. So it's not only it's not only the environment of trust, but as you say, it's understanding each other on a person-to-person level. And the other point for me is like, look, people are so hung up about their imperfections. It's like we're all being, you know, duped into play this perfection game. You know, yeah. we're all supposed to be perfect. And my God, if we admit to an imperfection, you know, that, that renders us liable to being fired. The reality is none of us is perfect and yeah. we need to understand our imperfections and why they are there and how we can work with others to close those gaps. Yeah. That's fulfilling for us and it's fulfilling for the organisation. For those that are really interested in this subject who want to go deeper, check out the previous co- podcast with Nadine Furlong. Okay. Her company is called Ugly Features yeah. um, and it's about how the concept of the business nobody trusts perfect. Yeah. So creating a veneered brand is actually as bad as creating a brand yeah, that's just terrible because Absolutely. people just don't connect with it because they it's the instant suspicion. You sometimes see it with politicians, don't you, yeah. where they go, oh, that that person seems too good to be true. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yes. Um, so, Clive, I just want to talk about your career a little bit, but yeah. I do want to come back to neuroscience because I know this is so interesting to people. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of people out there that want to be a CEO. You've been a CEO. Uh, how did you become a CEO? Well, I, um, I think there were, the main reason was I was completely driven. You know, it's right back to, uh, you know, I was from a working class background. And uh, I remember how hard my mum and dad worked. You know, my dad was from a mining community um, just to give us the opportunity. So I think part of that background, I may have missed out on some other opportunities, but it makes you very resourceful. And I guess I was driven by determination to prove to my parents that their their trust in me was well-founded. And now that gave me a great strength in terms of being driven and focused on what I wanted to achieve. But equally, like all strengths overplayed, you know, there was a time in my career where I think my view of the world was too narrow. There was only one way to see the world for me at that stage. And I learned through a number of experiences that actually that wasn't right. There was were that other before ways. you were a CEO or during or after? Uh, well, I, I operated in some very senior management roles in quite big organisations. So I think it was at that senior level where, you know, what, what I'd achieved so far by drive and purpose and focus had got me so far. But then you get to a point where you come up to people that are just as good as you are. Yeah. And you can't outshine them anymore. And they do it by different means. And I think that's when I had to start to let go of some of the arrogance that I'd built up. 
you know, my one way of seeing the world. So there are, I think, probably these points in everyone's career where they seriously have to step back and take stock as to yeah. what's got them to where they are and what now be stopping them from getting any further. Yeah, so true. Um, what type of CEO were you? Oh, I was very much a people CEO. Yeah. Um, that may sound soft, it wasn't. I think because of my sporting background, I was always very competitive. Yeah. Um, but I wanted people to enjoy the competition. So for me, it was like, what makes people tick? Uh, what can I get out of them? That was my job. Yeah. How do I get the best out of the people? Um, but I always demanded accountability. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you play in my team, you give me your best and I'll give you everything I can to support you. Yeah. And people in general responded yeah. to that. And I think that's that I think even how you described it is that you used the defence word of soft is a definitely a generational difference, isn't it? Yeah. Because absolutely. now that would be we just it's seen as a strength, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and oh. things have just flipped. Yes, they are, totally. Um so you had a you were ahead of your time, Clive. That's one way looking at it, yeah, yeah. Um so obviously we're successful, but how did you how did you transition from being a CEO to working with companies like the Happiness Index on embedding neuroscience in because it's yeah. quite a big change for people. Oh yeah, like, it was. And, yeah, yeah, and some people thought I was crazy because I was, you know, the, the the business I was the CEO of was bought out, and people naturally assumed that I would go into another CEO role of another business. But whilst you look all powerful as a CEO. My experience when I was there was that you're pulled all over the place, you know, yeah. by customers, shareholders, staff, etc., etc., etc. And I guess that was where I was coming to that point of learning where I recognised I wasn't feel, feeling fulfilled anymore. And I remember there were a couple of sessions I was at where I just had to ask myself the question, "What the hell am I doing here?" Yeah. Um, and that strikes pretty deep. So when the business was bought out and I was asked to get involved with the new business. Um, I declined and took the opportunity instead to get back to my roots and my roots were clearly back to understanding people. Um, the neuroscience came about simply because I became aware of a business um, that was researching stress um, and I went to work along for them for a year um, but the main benefit was that it gave me access to the neurology, uh, into neurologists um, were operating clinically in hospitals. And that gave me a great opportunity to start looking at um, a completely new perspective right, on human behaviour. I didn't understand. I didn't know that. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So that was huge, you know. We were, Where was that? That was the, the particular guy I was working for was the head consultant at um, Chelsea and Wells, uh, Chelsea uh, and Westminster and Reading Hospitals. Yeah. Um, and the conversations with him about, you know, the brain and the heart just opened up a completely new world to me. And of course, for them, that was all about clinical applications, yeah. what goes on in the hospital. But for me, it was hoping up, opening up all these huge behavioural insights. So I thought, you know, why aren't you telling us about this? Yeah. So basically, that started what's now been a 15-year journey for me, where you know, I've constantly um, maintained a high reading level around neuroscience stuff, part of different research networks. And constantly try to underpin all the stuff I believe in from a business perspective with a, a neuroscience insight. Yeah. Um, and that, that's worked incredibly well for me. So it's interesting reading back, that listening back to your story, because that thing about always wanting to learn about human behaviour stayed yeah. with you. Oh, and, absolutely. Totally. And obviously you were applying that as a CEO, but yeah. moving away from that allowed you to go back to the learning part. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So I just wanted to tell neuroscience again because I know yes. people are so important. Can you can you give us the one hundred and one to neuroscience? Like, um, 
what what is neuroscience okay so essentially i touched on it briefly earlier but neuroscience really starts with an understanding of the brain okay so typically in the past um we could not understand how the brain operated in in live mode so i'm talking last century um so we could cut up brains after people died but you know we tended to object if they were still alive so <laughs> So, What's wrong with these people? Oh, no, it's, uh, it's customers for you. Um, but basically it meant that until the imaging technology that came along at the end of the last century, you know, in the 1990s, that, that was the first insights we could get into looking at the brain actually in operation. Right, and that's why when you started on your journey to understand it, a lot of it was in the NHS. That's, yeah, yeah. that's why okay, I get that link yes. now. So a lot of Absolutely. this came out of that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. so because... And it so fundamentally overturned some of my assumptions, which were, you know, most of my assumptions at that stage were psychologically based about um, human nature, that I had to follow it through. Now, no, I'm not rubbish in psychology, that's not the point. You know, before psychology, we had things like phrenology, feeling bumps on our heads, yeah. right? so we had nothing. So what's been achieved without that technology has been amazed. But you will not now see breakthroughs in psychology you'll see constant refinement and improvement in what we do which is brilliant but as i said earlier it's like that's taken us 50 percent of the way we now need to look at the rest of that so we need to understand more precisely how the brain itself works and this interrelationship between brain and mind and what my focus has been to try to bring it up to speed as being the neuroscience and that's moving so quickly and telling us so much about you know uh, about the way that our brains and bodies work that is just an amazing subject and, and i love sharing love sharing it yeah and i think i mean clive was just in one of our sessions where we were talking about the challenge that people think that ai artificial intelligence intelligence can make companies less human but i think our output from working with clive is that artificial intelligence can allow big groups of people to collect data um, to turn it into insight, to allow big organisations to continue to be more human, mm. which actually in the last 10, 15 years, the opposite's been happening. They're becoming less human. Yeah. So although people may fear AI, our view, um, Clive and I, is that together that actually AI can help us become more human again. Well, AI is, a tool, is a tool, isn't it? You know, and basically, like any tool, it can be used or abused. You know, and, and the trick is obviously to make sure we use it to help provide the insights that we need to take us forward. It's not there to replace human intellect and human insight. It's there to supplement it. Yeah. I think that's, that's a perfect point to go into summary, Clive. Okay, good. Um, so, three questions. Um, biggest low in your career? Biggest low in my career? Um, yes. Yeah, it's funny how these things jump out. Probably when I was shafted from a career point of view, where somebody who I considered previously a friend, where we'd gone through the career ladder together, then completely unbeknown to, to me, went um, uh, behind my back and spread all sorts of malicious rumours about me, which were completely untrue. Corporate rumours, I mean, nothing, yeah. nothing more than that. Um, but actually, the, the level to which people would go, talented people would go to further their own interests, yeah. uh, to me was, and I still look back on it now and just find it so hard to understand. Yeah. I would have been definitely guilty of being narrow and being arrogant, but I never, ever went out to try and damage anyone else. Yeah. And even though I recovered from that, 
it just I guess it was symptomatic that the lens to which people will go in the wrong type of organizations yeah. so yeah that was a lot for me definitely. it's interesting you saying that because I've had people in this podcast it's similar stories about how long that stuff stays with you yeah, it and, it, and, it, and, and, and it just it really does hurt people yeah. doesn't it yeah um, so let's cheer it up highest yeah. moment in your career Highest moment. I, I think it was a big one for me being appointed as a CEO, you know, because I'd been a, a chief operating officer in a much bigger company, but given the opportunity then to strategically lead a business, you know, I took a business from around about 100 people to about 1,500 people, which is what mattered to me um, over about five years, you know, in a different world, but having the opportunity to really put your stuff out there and back up the stuff you believed in was very, very important for me. Um, and then more latterly, what I do now, I absolutely love. It's like the icing on the cake, you know, that's just bringing everything together for me and uh, it's a huge learning space. Yeah. So, Clive, um, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Okay. I'm going to give you the final word, but I, again, I've learned so much from spending this time with you. I hope everyone listening has. Um, this isn't a push for uh, Clive, but Clive has two books out, um, which are amazing um, if you want to learn any more about this. Um, but Clive I'm going to give you the final word to finish up so thank you everyone who's listened thank you Clive you're welcome um, what's the this is an interesting one to ask you because you said this is your whole career but what is the biggest learning in your career oh I think to understand other people you have to get into their mind um, not in a manipulative sense but you have to learn to see the world that they see it and what that means, you know, understanding their view of the world, means removing judgment. We have to remove judgment and move into understanding. When we appreciate the way that other people see the world, we can, still, we can build bridges of understanding between us. That's what's vital. Wow, Clive, I think that's not just advice for us, that's advice for the whole world. Okay. <laughs> so let's find how to finish this. Thank you, Clive. Okay, cheers, mate.